Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. I like to say that my bitterness is a gift. I worked hard for that bitterness because beforehand I was going along with what they said. You know, I can't feel these things. I can't feel angry about my body being violated. I can't feel angry about people trying to kill me. I can't feel angry or bitter about anything. And then I realized that's for the church's sake. That's for the leadership's sake. That's for the the ideal reputation and their quote, quote, testimony. I'm angry. I'm angry that this happened to me. And you know what? I have a right to be. I'm angry that this happened to people I love. I'm angry that we weren't protected. I'm angry that my abuser didn't plead guilty even though he took an Alfred plea. These things, they're very valid. And I usually just never entertain the forgiveness and forget conversation with these people because it comes from their belief system and their doctrine that to me historically has shown is set up not to help victims, but to protect the abusers and the church's testimony. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Lydia, thanks for joining me on today's episode. Thank you so much for having me. You're definitely on the list of how has this not happened sooner when it comes to like guests on the podcast. Because I think we connected maybe right at the beginning of the show coming out. I know I've been following your stuff for, it feels like since 2020, but yeah, it's been a long time coming. I've always wanted to come on the show. I actually remember the first time that you shared a a live or a video inside one of our support networks. And I was like, yes, I've been waiting for this to happen. So it's yeah. that's been a long time, at least 2020, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. That's super cool. Yeah. In the beginning, it was like, I didn't have anybody watching anything I was doing. So I was literally just like every group I could find that I had been like secretly in or that I had like seen in the past, I was like, hey, look, here's this thing. But it's it's been really cool. And it's been cool seeing the work that you're doing with Vashti Initiative and with all the people you've connected with and you're writing. And I'm excited today because people are going to get to know you a little bit. I think sometimes, you know, when people share on a public platform or they're constantly in the advocacy mode, their own personal stories can kind of take a back seat. Um, and so I'm really glad people are going to hear your story in this conversation. Take me back to the beginning. We always go back to earliest memories. And generally, you know, I'm asking people, what's your first time you remember stepping foot in an IFB church or being part of that culture? Uh, but it sounds like for you, it was from day one, you were kind of entrenched in this. Uh, what are your earliest memories growing up? So, yes, I am born and raised second generation. You know, my earliest memories are church. Like my family always told me that my IFB pastor was in the hospital when I was born and he rocked me in the rocking chair while my mom and dad got some rest. That's the first memory wow. that I hear about. My first memories with the IFB in general is just like it was my everyday life. Uh, the preaching, the just the entire environment, Sunday school. I mean, it was only church. I was very isolated. Uh, my family, we were homeschooled. And so it was just a church. And 
we did see like outside relatives that are not part of the IFB, but it was more of a situation where our pastor and his family and church family were closer than my actual family. Right, right. And was this all in Virginia? Were you at Faith Baptist Church from day one, or did you switch churches at any point? That's a great question. I started at a smaller church in Chesapeake, Virginia, okay. called Little Baptist. And that was an environment, I don't have a lot of memories there, but it right. was a much more calming environment. It was more of IFB light, as we like to say it. Sure. And then when I, my family and I moved and around 2000, but we had joined Faith Baptist Church in 1999. So right. most of my collective memories with anything to do with the IFB are at Faith Baptist. Got it. Well, for people listening, I know there's many people listening for the first time who've been listening to the last couple episodes in light of like, let us pray and like some of the extra coverage, just people curious about this world. But also I think for people who grew up in it, there's different shades of IFB, right? You mentioned kind of the IFB light, you know, there's, I was just down in Hammond, Indiana by, you know, First Baptist Church of Hammond, which has its own kind of subculture and circles around it. What were the biggest influences on the church that you were attending and maybe on your parents' second generation IFB? Like, who are some of the prominent voices that they were listening to and consuming regularly? That's a great question. You know, I've always tried to figure it out. Be Being so isolated, we had our connections within the IFB world, but we didn't have any of the mega figures. So tracing back my roots, we come from a branch that was connected to BJU. Okay. But more specifically, we came from a local, not a mega church, but a bigger church, IFB, that inside Virginia Beach area. They had ministry that created so many churches. Uh, and they had recruited mainly military families, which comes from my background. Right. And they, it was like a, for them, they refer to it as like a massive movement. Right. And that just kind of created the IFB that I knew. People that we did know of, like John R. Rice was a big influence sure. uh, all of his literature, so to speak. And at my house, I'm not joking. And I say it with glad joy that my girls are good obedient girls, but it's understood at my house. If a girl lives at my house and she's 40 years old, she'd get up when she's called. She'll say yes, sir, and yes, ma'am, to her dad and mother. She'll do what she's told without saying, and she'll mind her dad. If it takes a belt or a trace chain or bed flats or a baseball bat now, and you think I'm joking, but they know I'm not. I'm just saying, God help me. I've told the devil, you will not get my girl. He's not going to. Uh, Hiles, we knew of Hiles, but he was more of someone that was more louder, you know, like a, a voice that they kind of strayed, kind of tried to have separate from him. But I'm, I can only imagine maybe that was during the time frame of when there was a lot of scandals that were in the news at that time frame. Honestly, if I did slap him in the face, or if I took a knife and stabbed him in the ch stomach, he'd pull the knife out and say, Preacher, if you felt led to stab me, here's the knife back. Do it again if God says do it. That's the kind of people God can use. That's the kind of folks God's looking for. But the Hiles influence was definitely there. BJU, PCC, those were the main, main environment, like influencers that I remember. For you, I know you say your earliest memories are IFB. A lot of times when I have conversations, it's my earliest memories were really great until they weren't. And there's the red flags that were there. And then there's some stories like your own where, as I read through them, it doesn't feel like there was a chance to even see the good things. It seems like you were put in a pretty bad situation as soon as you could remember. Talk to me a little bit about your kind of earliest memories within the home, within the church and seeing some of the abusive things that at the time, I know you probably weren't even able to process, but take me back to kind of early memories, foundational memories within that that world. There's a lot of fear. That's the, the biggest foundation. There was a fear of the doctrines that were, teach, that were taught. Like I had a lot of fear of hell as a child, definitely separation from like the rapture that that really messed me up for many years. The my memories when it comes to like there there are some positive memories. Like I had some close friends that I made, but 
those are more like a refuge from all of the abuse, if that makes sense. The abuse in the home was consistent and constant. I had two abusers that it was incest and I was molested from, I mean, my earliest memory is around four years old, but this was consistent probably every day until I was about 12. There were numerous times where things went beyond the molestation and uh, I was nearly killed numerous times by these abusers. I was nearly drowned, suffocated, stuff like that. Just a lot of traumatic experiences. As to the church, I mean, my abusers went to church with me. There was never a time where I didn't have any reprieve. The only time I think I remember feeling slightly safe was when I was in the choir singing because I could see my abusers in the pew. So there was just a little bit of distance. The The environment, you know, the teachings really, really messed me up. I didn't even know, like, that I was being abused. Like, we had no proper teachings on you know, what an, what anatomy was, what's safe and what's not safe touch. We didn't have anything like that. And we had a lot of the modesty culture that was, you know, inflicted on me as a child. I mean, I was six, seven years old and trying to cover my body from my brothers. Like that was very damaging. And even still now, I still struggle with that purity culture, modesty culture. You mentioned like you weren't informed or taught about any of these things, but yet you're experiencing so many different things that are not normal. And it's always an interesting conversation, you know, even referring to the doctrines or like the dress standards, the things that aren't, you know, aren't necessarily as traumatic, but they're things that you realize the older you get and the further removed you are, like how bizarre some of those things were or how abnormal they were. I'm curious for you with the abnormal things being so normalized, when that is your context, how did you categorize those things as a kid? Like, did you see them as bad? Did you see them as negative? You mentioned fear, but like when you don't have any measuring stick to say what's normal, what's not, like, how do you even begin to process any of those things? I don't think you can. I think that your brain protects you as much as it can. Um, So I think I had a lot of feelings of fear and being afraid constantly without any context or reasoning. So Mm -hmm. I had to like self-soothe all the time. And while these things were occurring, you know, I would like most children that are being abused, you know, I would disassociate or I would work through it in some way. I, I remember I had Nature was like something that I would go to, like I would go outside and just kind of like ground myself, like touching the grass, looking at the sky. And that would just get me through like these constant assaults, frankly, you know, on the daily. So there there was no way of knowing, obviously. It was just a very big, giant mind game. And I just knew I didn't like it. Mm -hmm. I was very terrified. But I was also hearing from my family, from the church, that this is your family. They say, like, you're safe, but the meaning, the definition behind safety is not accurate. It's like a complete falsehood. So still to this day, I still have to work through, like, the feeling of I wasn't safe, but, oh, I was said that I was safe. And how that still can articulate, like it still appears in different ways now. Oh. But you mentioned the church and what the church is telling you in, I want to say in contrast with what was happening, but I would say in conjunction with what's happening, you're getting messages from the pulpit, you're getting messages through actions from people who are attending church with you. What was the church teaching you in conjunction with this abuse? and? Did the church know how unsafe you truly were? So they taught that I was to submit. And that word for me was obey as a child. We all remember the obedience song. And I absolutely hated that as a child. I hated that song. I always got stubborn. Like it always irritated me for some reason, but I never could quite say why. So the teachings of the the safety, like it made it so that there was nothing supposedly supposedly going wrong. Nothing was actually occurring. I, I... just felt this way for no reason. Now, as to like the church, like, did they know? I told a few adults, but in reality, it was more of 
siblings, because I mean, we're in an abusive home. There's numerous predators. There are other victims. They would go to the pastor at Faith Baptist Church. I know that they told him and he did nothing. I had older siblings, adults, 27, you know, close to their 30s. They knew, did nothing. There's a couple of times where the abusers and these are adults were kicked out of the home, but then they would come back. And there were also times, you know, in the community that we had CPS at our doorstep three times that I remember. And each time that they would come to the door, like there was education neglect suspected, uh, physical neglect suspected. And every time they came to the door, because of the teachings that we had from the church, from like Homeschool Legal Defense Association, we we never said anything. We were never allowed to talk to the CPS. Uh, each time a guardian would get on the phone with HSLDA, their lawyers would tell them how to get out of this. So it's it's hard to know. Like it's I know in hindsight there were numerous adults that knew and just did nothing. And I still have to kind of process that today. It just seems like a reoccurring thing that happened. And, and years later now, I knew of numerous victims from the same church and the same situations that happened. Yeah. Was this something in the church? Because I know for me, I remember a few times where I don't think the main staff at our church ever talked about it, but I know there were some guest speakers who would talk about like corporal punishment and they would talk about like CPS is looking for any reason. Like you'd hear horror stories about kids being taken from good Christian parents and put in an ungodly foster system, all of that in big air quotes. That's not me saying that. That's what I heard. But you would get these almost like this thought process of, you know, make sure that your, you know, your kids aren't going to say, you know, like with spanking, you know, make sure that that's not something that's going to lead to your kids being taken away. Like there was this always this fear of the government stepping in to the Christian school, to the home, like overstepping in their eyes and taking kids out of these homes that in retrospect, kids probably should have been in some of these stories. Did you hear that kind of teaching as a kid where like the pastor would get up and say stuff like that? Or was it just kind of something just nobody talked about, but everyone knew like, hey, CPS is not on our side. Like it's us versus the world kind of mentality. I absolutely heard it. Like that was, they made law enforcement and CPS to be very big boogeymen. Yeah. They, they taught it from the pulpit. They would say, you know, how to beat your child on, in places that they cannot be seen. Like with the clothes could cover it. We were also like, we had HSLD that would send like their, their magazines, all their literature to our home. And they had it, I remember it very, very clearly. They had each step on how to avoid CPS, like how children that are homeschooled need to be away from the windows, how you need to have the curtain shut, how you need to lay down on the floor if someone comes knocking on your door in case it's CPS. Right. We, we were told to stay inside so that people wouldn't know we were homeschooled until when the bus came around the corner for the public school kids and they were dropped off, oh, you can go out and play now. Right. And, and there is a very, so much fear mongering about the government getting involved in taking us children. I mean, I was terrified and no doubt that teaching also got in the way of me being able to say to like social workers when I was able to speak to them, like what was going on. So I was terrified. I, it was such a difficult thing. You're in a house with abusers, but you're also taught that if you say anything, you're going to be taken from your entire family. Yeah. It it's almost tough. it's almost like the devil you know feels safer than the devil you don't kind of thing. Like you're going, yes. I know this routine. I know this world. I've heard from the pulpit. The outside world is way worse. I can't even imagine what that's like. So yeah, it's a big silencing tool. You mentioned the Homeschool Legal Defense Association. For people that don't know what that is, I know you gave, they could probably deduce from context, but what role did they play and what do they do? And are they still active? They're absolutely still active. Michael Ferris created that organization many years ago. It was especially prominent during like the 80s and on because of the homeschooling boom in our country, uh, so to speak. 
they they are absolutely fundamentalists. Michael Ferris used to be an IFB pastor, and he he continued those views, whether it's with his college Patrick Henry, or or the fact that he was connected to so many like landmark decisions being overturned in the Supreme Court. Their their organization is supposed to be about like keeping the fundamental beliefs of Christians and their families safe. But the reality is, is that what they have recommended, the the quote unquote resources they provide do not keep kids safe. Um, and my situation, kind of like I've already kind of touched based on it earlier, both of their teachings and in they were connected, obviously, to our church because, you know, a lot of people would, there's a lot of homeschooling families in IFB, and homeschooling could be a wonderful resource mm-hmm. outside of, like, fundamentalism. But they they really, I mean, my parents paid a subscription to them, you know, to get this protection, to have all of these, I don't know, like, it. it it's just something that, like, for me, it still bothers me to this day because I feel like if that fear hadn't been planted, if HSLDA hadn't been a tool weaponized against me, I think that CPS probably would have definitely been able to get through that door three times. And this was over the course of numerous years. I mean, the abuse only got worse each time CPS showed up, right. it, which is which is you know odd. You know, it would pause for a little bit, but then it would start up, and it would be like like you said something, and then you know the I was blamed or we were blamed, you know, the victims were blamed, and then it would just become that much harsher. Right. Like almost like retribution for bringing attention to yourselves. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's important for people to know. And I think that's one of the areas that things get lost in these discussions is that, like you said, organizations like HSLDA present themselves as protecting religious freedom or protecting freedoms for parents to choose how they want to raise their kids. And both of those things on their own are not bad things. Like it's good to protect people's expressions of belief. It's good to protect, you know, rights of parents. But as I've said a million times, and this comes into play with things like legal action against troubled teen homes, this comes into conversation when CPS is involved in these stories, is there shouldn't be religious exemptions for abuse. Like, and I think a lot of times organizations, legal figures don't understand all of the belief systems that are backing the situation they're walking into. So what looks like a valiant effort to save religious freedom or looks like a valiant effort to protect rights of parents is really just enabling abusers and disempowering kids who are in really bad situations. Um, So I wanted to make sure we definitely talked about them specifically. Um, Yeah. and, And just to kind of like get on that for a little bit, that that is an excellent point you make. It's one of those things that for me, as someone that was failed by the system, as someone who had the, because of these, you know, as you point out, these are great things by themselves, you know. But when you have an agenda that cares more about protecting a religious belief over the rights and safety of a child, that's where you get things that go very, very wrong. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Yeah, it's like I said. It's just I keep seeing this come up, and I and I see this even in conversations with statute limitation. Like, there's just so much that I wish judges, social workers, like I wish they understood about religious indoctrination, and also just like being trauma informed. You know, like yes. how do kids behave? You know, and I think of I think of just judges that I've heard literally talk about. You know, well, it was, cons- you know, they were a minor, but it was consensual. And it's like, or it's a minor, but they waited, you know, they waited 20 years to come forward. And you're like, do you know nothing about <laughs> this process and what it's like to come forward? So, yeah, I wanted to take an extra, extra second on that. But going back to your experience, this is something that from earliest memory, you have this 
horrific abuse that's layered in with layers and layers of religious trauma teaching that's reinforcing both explicitly and implicitly that what's happening to you is either okay or is just something that you have no right to say whether it is or isn't okay. Like your existence is in your property of your parents, essentially, is the messaging you're getting. This continues for at least seven years, maybe longer if it was earlier than what you remember, which is likely. Was this something where the abuse was just consistent and the same over that course of time? Did it ratchet up and get more abusive over time? And then what was the point at which it came to a a halt and you know what led to that end of that seven-year period? So for me, I think it was always just horrific abuse. But towards the last, I would say, last couple of years before there was legal action involved, it became genuinely life-threatening. Like I the the abusers were becoming more violent. And they were threatening, like, to to kill me if I said something. They they would they didn't they I think what it was is in many ways I like I have this memory of one of my abusers before before he we even went to court before anything like that ever happened. I didn't even know I had the option to speak up and stop it. I mean, and then I remember one night that he cornered me, and again, this is an adult to a. 11 or 12 year old at the time and begging for me not to say anything that he will lose his life. He won't be able to get married. He won't be able to have children. He won't be able to do anything if I speak. And it was an incredible moment for me because he begged me to forgive him. And I had this moment in my very young mind at that time that I can speak up. Mm -hmm. He's terrified of me saying the truth. I didn't know that I could say anything. And I remember saying, I forgive you to him to kind of be safe in that moment. But in my mind, I says, I said to myself, like, I absolutely do not forgive you. But it was like, it was for a moment, it was very empowering because I realized I've been afraid of this person for forever. But with just me using my voice as a child, he seems more afraid of me than I have ever been of him. That was like a big moment. And then on it, like I said, it became incredibly violent, life-threatening. There, there's numerous times, like I said before. But the moment that everything kind of came to an end, there were a few weeks, it felt like, where my family, my younger siblings and I banded together and we had our own alarm system of like, when this person comes home, we're all going to stay in the same room together. We are not going to be around them. We now know the word pervert. Like legitimately. And just for people who are listening, how many siblings did you have that were kind of, you know, coming together to be that kind of support system? So I'm one of 12 and it was the siblings, the the last five of us, we called ourselves the fantastic or fabulous five. Hmm. Too bad it wasn't four. You could have been easy, fantastic four. Gone (laughs) gone with such an easy nickname, but fantastic or fabulous five is pretty cool too. So yeah. Yeah, so in this in this kind of approach, like the power dynamic is shifting. You're seeing the person who held the power, which I love that, that moment of realization that I think everyone has to experience on their own, whatever their story is, where you see this person who feels all powerful and then it flips to going, they're incredibly weak. And my voice holds all the power. Like I could literally change everything through my voice. That's a really cool realization. And it's something... You know, we talked about when uh, I was talking to someone recently, recently, and they said, I used to listen to my pastor in such fear and like kind of awe of who they were and like this power that they had. And now I watch them and I, you know, they look like a bun- like bumbling idiot <laughs> behind the pulpit and I realize how weak they really are. For you, that moment of realization changes the way you're approaching the situation. Your siblings are starting to bind together and protect each other in this in this case at what point from there to you realizing now i know who i can go to that can actually change the situation instead of that cycle that was vicious of you know pastoral authority church members parents like constantly cycling back to other forms of abuse like 
when did you go, okay, now I can go to somebody that can actually help me go to this next level of justice, essentially? Um, so it's it's kind of hard to explain, but at that point, I think that having my voice was just telling my siblings, hey, this happened to me too. I didn't know that I could go to anyone else. At this point, the pastor had failed us. There was no adult that was safe that was going to do anything. Um, so I, we resulted to just surviving together. Right. Did you have Everything. any fear they wouldn't understand or they would also be against you? Or did you know they would have your back? I knew these siblings had my back. I just knew it because we were all we were all just living through, frankly, the hell together. We were surviving it together. And it also, for me, I had younger siblings, so this also helped me protect them. It gave me something to really focus on to kind of get me through it as well. Wow. What, it, How it all kind of came to to an end fully, uh, we had a knock, our fourth knock on the door from, from a CPS worker and okay. a detective. And okay. actually my family, the, the irony now, my family was in a big argument about the abuser that the, the, the detective and the social worker that were there for. While they were knocking this argument. Yes. Wow. Yes. And, and this person wasn't present. They were at work. The abuser was at work at the time. And I, I have a parent come and tell me like they're at our door. And I remember being terrified of this, this, this detective. I mean, he had a, he had a cowboy hat on and he was very tall and the social worker, she was a, a woman and she wasn't quite as tall, but she was very intimidating. I was more scared of her than I was him, but they, you know, they took us and they put us in the back of that detective's car and they asked us like, did this happen? And as a child, I knew never to lie, technically. So I told the truth. And I it was it was a very intense moment. I mean, I was twelve years old. I felt, you know, a naive, innocent, but also mature beyond my years than I would ever want to be. And I was like problem solving, even in the back of that car with a detective. You know, they wanted to put us immediately into foster care. I was terrified of that. I'm like, can I please go like stay with a relative that's older? That and, and they made that work out. And it was a very difficult time. I would say, I think it took about three months. I wasn't allowed in my home. I was made to grab some clothes, grab a stuffed animal, and I grabbed my Bible. And we put it into a garbage bag and we went to a relative's home. And then we started the process of having to go and see like a clinical psychologist and I had a fantastic one for the case you know they they weren't they weren't counseling us but they were for the case and I really was struggling as 12 years old because I was telling the truth about what happened to me but I was still trying to protect my family and the church and I remember this one incredible moment she closed her notebook because I wasn't giving anything for her to write down for notes and she's like I get it. I I get it. You know, you're trying to protect people, but you've been doing this for a very long time. And I'm I'm I want to protect you and I want you to be able to trust me that I have your best interest. And for me it was a very important moment and I knew it was the first time that outside of that detective, outside of the social worker, these adults actually cared. They gave a damn. Like they genuinely did. They were safe. I never felt like I was going to be abused there. I just being shuffled from a small town to a big city to talk to these people for this court case in preparation for it was very surreal. It was very overwhelming. And I would also say here, uh, not to get too graphic, because I, I know this can be triggering for survivors to listen to, but I think it is very important. It was through these, these in preparation for this court case that I actually learned what my anatomy was. And it was something that should have been told to me much sooner, I feel. Like, even under oath, I didn't know the names of my anatomy. It was just a, like I said, it was a very big, it was very traumatic. Like, even learning that stuff was traumatic, even though I was technically in a safe space. It was, I felt very betrayed, you know, and very embarrassed. And uh, so, yeah. 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 No, I appreciate you sharing that. And, you know, I always try to give room for people to share as much or as little information as possible. And I know there's layers and layers and layers to this stuff. I'm curious 
you mentioned going through the legal process mm-hmm. at 12 years old I mean, for any minor this plays out in a variety of different ways you know there's a lot of times they try to keep the minors out of the courtroom they try to keep them away from a lot of what's going on which is a which is a good thing in some ways because it's like you said it's traumatizing enough going through the initial abuse and then having to be in a courtroom and all these sorts of things but on the other side i think the most powerful element of these cases is the testimony of the victim and so it can lead to lesser sentences or or you know it gives a lot of wiggle room for the abuser were you present in the courtroom did you have to give testimony and if so like what was that experience like did you feel like that was more traumatizing than the abuse itself do you feel like it was handled sensitively like what was that experience going through that it was very isolating you know i didn't have control unlike my church and my family at the time a lot of our relatives accused us of taking this abuse to court that's not the case it's the state i was a minor Right. Um, and I had really no privacy because as soon as he was arrested, within like literally from the time frame of being picked up by the detectives and taken to our temporary home, there was a, a massive prayer line. If I don't know if other people in the IFB are familiar with this, but it's it's a it's like a phone calls to church members to have an urgent prayer request. Someone had I know who the person is. They had reported that my abuser was innocent. And so within less than 24 hours of him being arrested, the entire church said we were lying. And this went out to numerous churches. So we were immediately, honestly, I was shunned. I wasn't allowed to sit with any other kids. They said that we could be perverted to other children. It was just a very isolating experience. And going through the legal system was equally isolating because no one would show up from the church to support us. I We had one person that came with us and one parent. I, I had my, my mom died when I was young, but the, there was the pastor that showed up and then another man that showed up and they were there not for support, but to watch the case. So I did give a testimony. I was prepared to give a testimony in a courtroom in front of everyone. But because this was, I'm a victim of incest, this went through family court first, like the preliminary period. Oh, okay. And so there, there's like two different court dates for this entire thing. So the preliminary, that's when I gave my actual testimony. Um, I had no one there, but the victims and myself and the detective and the prosecution team, the rest of them were there. And it was the first time I saw my abuser since he had been taken into custody, I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified. I'm not even going to lie. I was the first victim on the stand, so to speak. They says, you're, you've got a strong, you got a strong statement. Go and do it. You know, we want you first. And I wasn't prepared for that, but it was absolutely terrifying. I'm just, again, I'm 12 years old. My abuser is in a I believe it was an orange jumpsuit. The color always kind of changes in my brain as I'm little. And he was in shackles. And I remember thinking, I am so glad he's in shackles right now because I feel like he's going to leap across the table at me. The the His lawyer, one of the things that I absolutely remember, she asked if I asked for it, for him to molest me. And I remember as a 12-year-old, I was so stunned that this person that wasn't from the church would ask such a thing. Like, why are you defending him? Like, I didn't have the ability as a child to understand this is defense lawyer. This is their job. It just felt equally traumatizing to hear that. And I said, absolutely not. And that process, you know, they knew from my understanding, they knew from there that obviously he was guilty. But it became where we all showed up for court not knowing if he's going to take a plea deal, nothing like that. We're in this little room, but we were prepared to go onto the stand. We were going to have to go in front of everyone. And he took an Alfred plea. So he never pled guilty, but he did. He understood that the state had enough evidence to put him away for an extended period of time. 
if I understand correctly, he was up for at least 70 years and he took a plea deal for 27. And the the response after that, I remember just thinking, okay, it's over with. It's over with. We can move on. I know that the the assistant district attorney, which he was absolutely a hero in my eyes, uh, the first man I ever trusted in my life. He was the first person that wasn't independent Baptist that was a Christian. And he really wanted us to, he wanted me to go to counseling as a child. He had a special therapeutic ranch and he had people that were victims, child victims that would go out there and like connect with the horses and be able to like process their trauma. I wanted so badly to do that. I was not allowed. At the time, my guardian said they wanted to be done with the case and it to be over with. My pastor also, from my memory, he wanted it to be done with. I, I do remember a moment that he and the assistant district attorney met for the first time. Like, and it was it was a very incredible moment. I never saw my pastor, who was the epitome of authority in my life, feel like he just he like shrank in front of me as a person. That it was like I never realized. I, it was an incredible moment because it was it was like a the secular world especially the wall versus my my beliefs at the time which were not it wasn't a bad thing i just remember right. feeling torn cuz i i absolutely adored that district attorney because he 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 saved me you know that's how i looked at it as a child and it was like my pastor didn't so that was the first moment 100% that i remember like my pastor falling in my eyes but yeah you stayed with a family member who wanted the case to be done with and you were still attending the same church, correct? Yes. What was your experience? I know you shared with me in preparation of the episode, you shared that your pastor would often preach on forgiveness and even at one point mentioned that God forgives, will forgive anyone, even your abuser. He said that directly to you. Was this something that was, as much talk as there was about moving on from the case, do you feel like it's something that was, again, indirectly or even directly addressed often did you feel like your, you know, your, the way you were looked at in the church changed drastically from that point till the time that you left the church? Absolutely. That's where I learned the term damaged goods. 100%. The, the environment, like, I, I can't even fully explain it. It took many years for things to kind of just mild down a little bit when it came to the abuse case, like the fact that I was a victim. But it felt like, no matter how much I didn't talk about it, someone else would bring it up. And this wasn't something that only my church knew. There were other churches that knew. Because they tested it out. Yeah. And the my pastor, I believe I was either 16 or 18. It's hard to know. I can't remember. I have to look at my first article when I really talked about it. But he did. He was preaching on forgiveness. It was a constant theme. My family said, forgive, forget, forgive, forget. Like, if you've really forgiven your abuser, this wouldn't be a problem anymore. Um, I never brought it up. I, I genuinely did not talk about it. I couldn't talk about it. I would have flashbacks. I could not actually utter the words. But yes, my pastor came to me in the middle of a message, and it was shocking to me because he stopped at my pew, looks me in the eye in front of everyone. He's, he's talking about God's forgiveness, and he's like, you know who God can forgive? And he said my brother's name even him after everything. And like that was supposed to make me happy. Like he says, isn't that a wonderful thing? I was stunned. I, in that moment, I felt like someone had ripped off the worst Band-Aid of my life, like the most painful Band-Aid ever. And I could not stay in that service, which was a big deal because we were not allowed to leave the service when preaching was going on. He literally walked up to the pulpit and I went out in front of everyone. And I, I hit that swinging door to the hall from the auditorium and I was just burst out crying. I was angry though. I, I remember like I was huddling in the bathroom and I'm like, uh, how dare he? This is about my pastor. Like, how dare he? I never got an apology for that. I mean, and I mean, I never did ask for an apology for that. Only the only people that understood were those that were close to me. My twin especially understood. She came and checked on me. And there was a couple, a couple of kind of friends that knew the situation and, and they thought that was wrong. But the 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 belief around forgive and forget absolutely impacted me. Because I remember like 
there was this one message and we had an evangelist and I, they were talking about forgive and forget. And we had our family members who had taken us in the one, the court case to be done with look at us and says, you need to pay attention to this, like in the middle of the service. And I remember my twin was like crying at the altar. Like, I can't forget it. I can't forget it. And I says, you don't have to. They, they need to forgive that we were abused and did only what we were supposed to do, which was tell the truth when we had a police officer at our door. Like, it was just still to this day, they, they would not to this day because I don't have contact with them. But for many years, that was the thing. Like, if you mention it, you're not you haven't forgave. Right. I as a survivor, forgiveness is my choice. And that is that that them preaching that at me to me is victim shaming and gaslighting. Like it's incredibly inappropriate. Forgiveness is a phrase, you know, like you said, is is often repeated. What does forgiveness mean to you now? How do you define it? And do you think forgiveness is necessary? That is a very difficult question. A whole podcast episode, book, and maybe series of books. So I'll start with the latter question first. Okay. Personally, it's not necessary. And what does it mean to me today? I'm still learning that. You know, I think the biggest thing that coming from my background, they referenced repentance, but it was never real. I mean, the amount of times that I may have had an abuser ask for, for my ask for my forgiveness but continue to abuse me made that word completely void in my mind. Now it is it is legit, like it's a practice that I do use, but with people that are trustworthy, with people that are safe. It's it's completely different in my mind. And I I feel like for me. I will say it. I do not forgive my abusers, and I have no problem saying that because they, what they did, has forever marred me. You know, I was never ashamed or embarrassed to say that I haven't forgotten it, even if I wanted to, even if I had pled with God, like pleaded, like God, please take this away. Like it would still be there because it's with me forever. Because that's how trauma is. I think more importantly, I forgive my young self for for feeling guilty for years like what if i didn't lock that door what if i had never entered that room or what if i like i had a lot of what ifs that really really would haunt me as a child and i realized that all of that was misplaced and i says you know what i have really nothing to forgive myself for but i forgive that part of me that was just trying to protect myself unnecessarily like i shouldn't have ever have been part of like put it in these positions. These people should have never betrayed this trust. Family can be safe. Unfortunately, some of mine were not. And that's pretty much where I'm at. Like there's, it's a very difficult question. It's still something I'm learning today. Yeah. Yeah. And I ask it not knowing the answer myself in some of these cases. I don't believe forgiveness is necessary toward the abuser. I was sitting, I was sitting at lunch with some people after the protest at First Baptist this weekend. And I forget who said it. It may have been Amanda Fay, or it could have been April Avila. It could have been Kathy Davis. We'll just equally split credit across the entire table because I don't know who said it. But someone said an apology without change is manipulation. And I wish I knew who said it because that's such a cool quote. But it, it to me, some of these cases... I feel like the apology exists only for the forgiveness to happen. There's no legitimate any change. And I personally am not convinced that people who do these sorts of things can change. And I think mm-hmm. science backs that up, but I won't go down that whole rabbit hole. But for me, I think the way you describe forgiveness of forgiving yourself and forgiving the parts of you that did not understand what else could be done is mm-hmm. so important. Because I think there's so much shame that comes and i want to be very clear like unnecessary shame that is felt growing up within these environments it's hard having these conversations too because i want to be careful i'm not saying this is right but there is Mm -hmm. so much shame growing up in these environments that's put on you you know there's so much shame in well why didn't i do this why didn't i stop this did i do this did i all these things that the answer when you work through the healing process is definitively no, 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 this is not yeah. your fault. And so I think that forgiveness to yourself is so valuable. But also I think we just need to restructure 
a lot of the conversations around forgiveness, bitterness, and all those other phrases comes from the churches that enabled the abusers. And so I used to always say, I'm not bitter. I'm angry. I'm I'm not this. I'm this. And like having to play these semantic games of what emotion I am. And the truth is, if we're going to be bitter about something, why not be abuse in the church? And if we're going to be angry about something, why not this? And if we're going to be unforgiving, like to me, I think stripping away like all of those conversations about like, well, exactly what process did you go through to forgive this person or to to work through your bit? It's like people are angry and that's okay. And I think demonizing that is something that is rooted so heavily in like even well-intentioned Christian teaching where, yeah, that forgiving 70 times seven feels really fine when someone's annoying you or someone's bothering you. When it comes to abusing you, I don't think, I don't know. I don't put that in the same category where we're going through all these kinds of steps. But anyway, that's a whole nother, like I said, that's a whole nother series of books on what this topic is. But I wanted to get your perspective because I think it's one that people often ask and and throw out. I like to say that my bitterness is a gift. Hmm. I work hard for that bitterness because beforehand I was going along with what they said. You know, I can't feel these things. I can't feel angry about my body being violated. I can't feel angry about people trying to kill me. I can't feel angry or bitter about anything. And then I realized that's for the church's sake. That's for the leadership's sake. That's for the the ideal reputation in their quote, quote, testimony. At your expense. Yes, at my expense. It did nothing for them. And so for me, like, I think the biggest moment for me, even in the IFB was, I'm angry. I'm angry that this happened to me. And you know what? I have a right to be. I'm angry that this happened to people I love. I'm angry that we weren't protected. I'm, I'm angry that my abuser didn't plead guilty, even though he took a guilty, you know, an Alfred plea. These things, the, these things are very valid. And I usually just never entertain the forgiveness and forget conversation with these people because it comes from their belief system and their doctrine that to me historically has shown is set up not to help victims, but to protect the abusers and the church's testimony. And that's why for me, like, like I said, like it's, how do I feel about it now? In the IFB, it's, it's inappropriate. It's not necessary. It's if, it works for them. It doesn't work for the victim. On the outside, well, I've been therapy for many years. So it it does work, but it's a different, complete different meaning and definition now. Yeah, fast fast forwarding to now, and I know that's a big fast forward because I know there's been a lot of work <laughs> internally and kind of re- redistributing those emotions from being internalized to finding the true culprits and externalizing them. I'm curious now. You know, you said there's still things that you're working through, obviously. You know, I think there can be a mentality of, well, you know, the one that was t- told to you, which is let's, the case is done with, which is not even a fully true thing because you have one who didn't face any real exactly. justice. You have one who got 27 years, which can't make up for a lifetime of you having to deal with the effects of it. So there's, there's those layers there that, well, it's easy for other people to say it's over and done with and wash their hands of it. This is something you're working through every day and working through therapy, through sharing your story. You don't just get to choose to be quote unquote done with it. And I'm curious, like, where do you hold this now? You know, you've got a, you know, you've got a life of your own now. You've reclaimed much of what has been taken. You know, how has advocacy, how has separating from some of it helped you? Like, what does the healing journey look like? I know healing is not a destination. It's like a process. So what does that process look like for you right now? I've come a long ways. I left the IFB nine years ago. And I left because the abusers that didn't get justice, that I didn't get justice for, came back after a long period of time. The first few years, you know, I was really shut down. I'm not even going to lie. I had crippling anxiety, depression, severe PTSD symptoms. I had nothing. I my health was taken from me. It was just a very, very dark time. Now, now I, I honestly, 
it feels like the IFB would that experience was a much distant experience like in the past like I know it's it was in the past which is very beautiful for me because PTSD makes you want to feel like it's present you know my life looks a lot different though it's it's safe I I have been able to have a lot of boundaries put down for many years now with those that either abused me or contributed to the abuse or didn't protect me so forth I have a lot of boundaries there put down. I have been able to get a job outside of the IFB. I have a career that I'm really working on and loving. I've been able to work with children, which was an incredible experience. Mm. I was a mandated reporter. Uh, not very hard to do. I mean, it they, they train you. you There's no excuse. You got to report. You pick um, up the phone. Exactly. You call. How about that? Yeah. How about that? Yeah. And then I have... I built a life that is, like I said, is very beautiful now. I have a lot of happiness, a lot of joy. My PTSD symptoms, like there's times where it will come back up, you know, and you kind of come a little bit out of remission, then you go back into remission. But I've done a lot of hard work. I've had numerous years of therapy, some EMDR. I have wonderful support systems now. I have great relationships with the fantastic, fabulous five of my siblings. I'm an auntie to a couple, you know, to to some of my nephew nieces, some of them I'm not able to have contact with. I was shunned a few years ago. But, and I have like a wonderful husband, you know, a safe person, secular. I mean, doesn't even understand my background, but very, very, very supportive. There's so much, I spent so many years trying to build for what I have now that it, it seems almost not real because it's safe. Like I don't have to worry about it. Like for many years, for the first 21, definitely, I was just, trying not to be raped frankly or trying not to be molested or or trying to not be shunned or some something was going on you know something was always it was just survival now i'm thriving and advocacy played a big part in that i i don't know why i i even jumped in that boat but i did because for me i think it part of it's because i love to write it's been a wonderful tool to to heal with and i started sharing my story like just to do it for me, like I, I didn't expect anyone to really reach out. It just, it it became something that a catalyst for me to continue forward on the journey. And I do look back. I do look back because I want to to remember how far I have come. But it's not somewhere where I permanently stay. You know, it's like right. a book, and I shut the cover, and I I go live in the present. But yeah, I love that. Yeah, I was curious about that because I know. It can be a, it can be difficult sharing the story. And I know, you know, I, our backgrounds are not similar, so I'm not equalizing our experiences Mm -hmm. at all. But I know for me, I jumped into sharing and doing like talking about it before I even was in the place to talk about it. Yes. So, but I don't know that you can get to the place to talk about without talking about it. It's like, you kind of have to go through those necessary steps. There's things I definitely wish I would have handled first. But I resonate so much with, at least with the church side, the religious trauma side, it used to be this constant buzzing in the background, like idling. And I would wake up thinking about it some mornings, like even a couple of years ago. And I feel like now the podcast for me has become the, I don't want to say box because you don't put stuff in a box, (laughs) but it's the system in which I process that. And then I have my life that's separate. And I never thought I'd be able to do that. And it's cool hearing you kind of echoing that Mm -hmm. in the terms of writing is the time that I'm working through it and doing advocacy work is the time I'm working through it. But I also have this whole life that's so detached from it that it feels like a different life. I think that's really cool. And I think that's important for people to hear because I know, you know, if social media is any indication, there's a lot of people listening to the show that don't think that's possible for them. And it definitely is. Like it's definitely possible to get there, but it's a, it's not a quick journey. We fast forwarded, I'm sure a lot of things that have helped over the, over the last couple of years. But, um, but I think it's really cool. Now you're kind of helping the next generation of people or next phase of people kind of move along that path too, through your work. So I think that's really amazing. And it comes with a lot of trial and error. Like at first I jumped in, I had no boundaries. I didn't have my therapy at the time. And it was burnout within six months. Yeah. I mean, I was cataloging crimes like every day. I'd like have 
I think every week we, my, my twin sister and I would have like three or four victims come and share their stories, things that weren't in the papers, stuff that we couldn't find online. These were people just saying here, this is this, this is that, this is, you know, and cataloging it. And I was able to see like how big this problem was. I mean, and that just came from, I was curious one day and I decided, you know, I'm going to research the troubled teen industry homes. And I found someone that I knew all my life and I had no idea that he was part of New Bethany Home for Girls. And he w- he was, I think, second in command under Mac Ford. And he was a rapist. I like a, a alleged a rapist, fine, you know, but I believe the victims 100%. And I remember just that feeling of, well, if this person, if I knew this all my life, but didn't know this part about him, how many other crimes are out there? And it just snowballed. I mean, it was a snowball effect and it was overwhelming. And I burned out. Writing helped with it a little bit, but yeah, it's a lot of trial and error. And then you had, like, I learned to like turn off my phone, like don't answer these messages, take time for myself, do my therapy, you know, get out in nature. Inboxes are another level of hell when you start oh, doing this. I, yeah. Thankfully, it's calmed down a lot for me, but a few years ago it was just overwhelming and and i always tell my friends now like if hey if i don't respond it's not that i'm ignoring you i might be ignoring you but not out of a malicious way it's just me taking care of myself (laughs) i didn't do that before because i'm like i have to listen to this victim's story and i wanted to be supportive but at what cost you know and so like i said like it's a journey as you mentioned before it's a process for me it was a lot of trial and error yeah yeah, I think that's good to good to discuss. I think that's something again, I think you have to go through it and make those I don't want to say mistakes because I think it's necessary. But I was the same way when I started the show. It was literally like and I'm sure you know this too, the stories that people share that don't make the papers are sometimes way worse than the stories that do. And there's been times there's one interview I recorded that will never come out because of just safety, but it's, I think about it all the time. It's, it's heavy and it is like, I think pacing is like something, if I could give advice to me, it's like pacing. It's like, you may think you can handle it, you know, cause I would do, I think it was the ministry mentality in doing this stuff. It's like, I'll do four interviews today, you know? And it's like, I feel great. And I go boom, boom, boom. And we're, you know, there's a separation of the microphone and the camera and you're in business mode and you've got your notes but what people don't factor at least i didn't factor is like three days from now when i'm sitting with none of that distraction and i'm thinking about it how is it going to affect me and i think you have to slowly measure how you handle that and for some they can handle a little bit more for some you know but i think everyone overestimates like oh i got this i i you know I know, I know what to expect. You don't (laughs) like, there's a lot, there's a lot of layers, but listen, I, I really appreciate you doing this. I know there's a million different branches that we could probably go down and maybe at some point we will on some of these a little bit more, but I think it was important to share your story because I think people see even myself, you know, I see the public author side and covering other stories and other people's things. But I think it's so cool to get to know the person who's doing it and why. And I'm hoping people walk away from this feeling like they know you a little bit more, understand the passion behind your work. And I just really appreciate you taking time to do this. I I really appreciate the opportunity to come and tell a little bit of my story. Like, Like I've said before, I haven't really been able to share it in this much detail um, other than to my safe people in my life. So this has been very rewarding and I consider it just another part of my story that I'm very excited about. So thank you, Eric. And thank you for everything you do. Yeah. Thank you for people who are listening. We keep mentioning your writing. Where can people find your writing? I should probably mention that before we close out. Honestly, go follow my From the Desk of Lydia Joy Facebook page because that's where I keep everything. That is my filing cabinet. Let's get real. Perfect. Well, go dig through the filing cabinet. Go check out From the Desk of Lydia Joy on Facebook. There's lots of good articles there. Lots more from a variety of coverage. You've covered like the Duggar story, things like that, and always Mm -hmm. love your perspectives. 
But for now, we'll wrap up this episode. Hopefully we chat again really soon, both off mic and on. Thank you for all your hard work. And I really appreciate talking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.